This is the message given by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Renahan during the annual Reformation Day service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for October 29, 2023. The title of the message is Plentiful Redemption. Good evening. It's very probable that this morning in your churches, your pastors mentioned uh, the Reformation, its historical beginnings, especially that moment when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg to invite scholarly debate in the church about doctrines and practices that he was questioning in light of the scriptures and everything that came from that point forward has led to us. (laughs) and to our churches, and we rejoice in the light of the gospel that was recovered and restored through the Protestant Reformation. But what difference did it really make? What difference did the Reformation truly make? Well, we could answer that from a number of angles, couldn't we? One of the ways to answer that question would be to compare the Roman Catholic dogma to the creeds and the confessions prior to the Roman Catholic Church and the creeds and confessions of the Protestant Reformation. We could compare documents. We could compare books. There are many different ways that we could look at, well, they believed this and then they believed that, or they restored this and recovered that, and we could compare ideas. And if you think about the Reformation in terms of a comparison of ideas, certainly that is a a rich area in which we can form our opinions. But what about for you and me? What about for the Christian in those days, the Christian in the 16th century, or the Christian in the 17th century, in their personal experience, what difference did the Reformation make for them? And there are a number of ways to answer that question also, and I plan to give you one of those ways later in the sermon. So I want to pause that question. What difference did the Reformation make in the life of a believer? Pause that question, and I want us to study Psalm 130. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 130 with me. And after we study Psalm 130, we can return to the question of the difference that the Reformation made in the life of the Christian. Let us read the perfect word of God in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning. More than the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I'd like to consider this psalm under three headings, if you're taking notes. And the first of those headings 
is the promise of pardon for those who plead for mercy. The promise of pardon for those who plead for mercy. And we're examining the first four verses of this psalm where we see the cry of a desperate man. The psalmist cries out and pleads for mercy from the depths, from the darkness, from the pit. The psalmist says, hear me, listen to me, please. What is, what is his plea? What is his petition? It is for mercy. But why does the psalmist need mercy? Well, it's very clear because he is sinful. Because he knows the wickedness of his own heart. He knows the unrighteousness and the unholiness of his life. Look at verse 3. You can see what his concern is. What is his great preoccupation? It's his iniquities, his sin. He knows that he's been disobedient to God's law. And in verse 3, he asks the question, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, we all must answer that question. If God marks my iniquities, if God marks our iniquities, can we stand before him? Does God know? Let's answer the question. Does God know all of our sin, the sins of our hearts, the sins of our words, the sins of our deeds, or the things that we have left undone? In our Confession of Faith, in the Westminster Confession, in the Second London Baptist, in chapter 6 of Sin, we confess that even the first motions of our hearts towards sin are sinful. It's not just what we've done, but even what we've been inclined to do, even if we didn't do it. Our sin is within and without. It's inside and outside. Our sin is what we do and what we don't do that we ought to do. And God knows it all. He knows your desires, your intents. He knows your motivations. He knows all that you have said. He knows all that you have done. He knows our sin. So we have to ask that question or answer the question, what if God marked them all? What if they were all recorded forever? Would there be any hope for you? Would there be any hope for me? Would there be any hope for any of us? Could anyone ever escape judgment and condemnation if God marked all our iniquities? And we all know the answer to that question, don't we? The answer is no. We cannot stand. We cannot escape judgment or condemnation if God marks all our iniquities. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. We sang it. He knows our sins. What can we do, therefore? As the psalmist did, we, we plead. We ask for mercy. The psalmist envisions himself at the bottom of a deep pit, a pit that he cannot escape. We're not talking a pit you dig at the beach where you see how deep you can get it, but it's never that deep. It feels deep when you're a little kid, but it's really not that deep. We're talking about a pit, an abyss, an inescapable depth. And the psalmist envisions himself in this pit, and he, he looks up and he sees light above. He's in the darkness. He's in the depths, but he knows there's light above him. There is light with God. There is mercy with God. And so he pleads for mercy and pardon. And what does verse 4 tell us? It tells us a beautiful, wonderful truth. That with God, there is forgiveness. 
there is a promise of pardon, a promise of forgiveness for all those who plead for mercy from God. From the depths, the psalmist cries out to the very God against whom his iniquities stand as offensive and unholy acts of rebellion. And that's the very one that he goes to. Why? Because with you, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness. Sometimes when a child offends one parent, they go to the other (laughs) in hopes of finding help somewhere else or finding perhaps mercy from the other parent who doesn't know yet what the child has done. The psalmist doesn't try to avoid the God who knows all his sins. He goes directly to the God who knows all his sins. Why? Because with you, there is forgiveness. We see that the psalmist does not try to hide his sin. He does not try to conceal it or to cover it up. He doesn't try to lessen it or or diminish it or explain it away or justify it. He simply takes himself with all of his sinfulness to God and says, please forgive me. You know all my iniquities. Please do not mark them. Please do not record them forever. Please do not count them against me. There is no hope for me apart from you. You who know the fullness of my sin, with you there is forgiveness. So I draw near to you and I plead for mercy. And brothers and sisters, do we not rejoice that with God there is forgiveness? This forgiveness that God gives and grants, he gives and grants freely, mercifully. And this causes the psalmist to fear him and to revere God, to honor and adore God. He says, that you may be feared so that you who forgive me, that I might have a a majestic reverence for you. It moves him to worship God's pardon. God's mercy moves him to gratitude and adoration. Oh, Lord, I fear you. You could have destroyed me, and justly so, but you have inclined your ear to me. You have been attentive to the voice of an unworthy worm, a sinner such as I. And, oh, Lord, you have given me mercy and forgiveness. You are to be worshipped and adored and praised and thanked and feared forever and ever. Secondly, we find in the second place the trustworthy word of God for the patient soul in verses 5 and 6. The trustworthy word of God for the patient soul. The psalmist continues to express his trust in God. He trusts in God's word, which helps him to be patient. His patience and his trust is founded upon what God has declared in his word, God's promises to him. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Have you ever been outside of an operating room Not have you ever been inside of an operating room. Have you ever been outside of an operating room? My son was born 11 weeks early. He was just a wee baby. And he needed heart surgery not long after he was born. He weighed one pound and 13 ounces. And he needed heart surgery in that little tiny body of his. And waiting outside of the operating room was not a pleasant thing. Because time works differently outside of operating rooms, doesn't it? 
the minutes and the seconds are quadrupled so that they go slower and slower and slower, and you're just waiting and watching. More recently, a a dear sister in our church had a major heart surgery, and the doctors were very good about coming out to give us updates. It was an all-day kind of thing, but there was also a a TV screen with updates. Okay, the patient is undergoing surgery, the patient is in recovery. Those, those types of things are posted and updated on the screen. And you're just watching, you're just waiting in anticipation. And the, psalm, the psalmist uses the example of a watchman waiting for the morning. I've been, ex- I've been mercifully excluded from the need to be a watchman all night for something. But it would be similar. You just want the dawn to come. You're just waiting for those minutes to tick away and for the sun to rise so that your watch can be over. Not simply in the sense that when will this night be done, but a watchman is on guard. A watchman, if, he, if the sun comes up, that means nothing bad happened tonight. If the sun comes up, it means we made it through the night. And so the, the watchman not only wants the sun to rise, it's not just so his shift can be done and he can go home. It's so that danger is gone. We can see daylight has arrived. We're all safe. And so someone who's waiting for a surgery patient or someone who's waiting for the dawn is waiting with anticipation for a better state, for a better condition, for something beyond them and ahead of them that they expectantly and excitedly await. The psalmist here prays for God's pardon. He prays for God's mercy. He prays for God to have compassion upon him. He commits his case to the Lord and he waits patiently for the Lord. Why? Because he says, in your word, I hope. In your word. And when we go to the precious word of God, what do we find? Do we find things in which we can hope here? Or do we find God, to to use a phrase, hell-bent on our destruction? Is God determined to send us to condemnation? Or does God, in his word, say, I will forgive your sins. I will redeem you from all your iniquities and your transgressions. What do we find in his word? We find hope. We find a promise of pardon and and a trustworthy word that helps us to be patient as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. The psalmist waits patiently, knowing with knowledge God will do all that he has promised to do. God will fulfill all that he has committed to do, and so I will wait for him. Am I anxious for the fulfillment? Yes. Am I anticipating? Do I want it to come now and sooner and sooner and sooner? Yes, but I know it's coming. I know it's on its way. I know his promises will be fulfilled unto me because with you is forgiveness, and in your word, I hope. Thirdly, in the third place, we see the steadfast love of the Lord for the hopeful saint. The steadfast love of the Lord for the hopeful saint in verses 7 and 8. There's a shift in this psalm, moving away from the psalmist's personal experience to an exhortation given to Israel. And so therefore, this command comes to us. The psalmist now addresses us and says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why, psalmist? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel 
from all his iniquities. You see, the perspective is now changed from someone who's waiting for mercy to one who has obtained it and now calls others to pass through the same experience. The psalmist says, I have seen and tasted that the Lord is good. I have asked him for mercy and he has given it to me. Now I exhort you, now I call you to wait upon the Lord, to hope in the Lord, because with him is plentiful redemption. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and his redemption is plentiful. Sometimes the best restaurants to go to are the ones that someone else has been to. And they say, I've been there. It, they have the best tacos. And then someone else says, no, 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 they have the best tacos. And then there's a big fight. The best restaurants, in general, we expect to have the best reviews or the best personal testimony. I have tasted and seen that it is good. Well, here we have the psalmist's personal experience and testimony given to us to say, I pleaded to the Lord for mercy and he gave it to me. I asked him for compassion and love and he loved me. And I can tell you that his love was not for a moment. His love was not just for, for a time. His love endures forever. With the Lord, there is steadfast, steadfast love, faithful, persistent love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He doesn't say, and the Lord forgave 50% of my sin. He doesn't say, and the Lord forgave most of my sin. He doesn't say, and the Lord, he made me work hard, but eventually, he, eventually he gave in and forgave my sin. No. He says, with him is plentiful redemption. He's giving it out freely. Now you may think, that's, that's quite lovely, but what does it have to do with me? Why would God be merciful to me? And so we need to read this psalm in light of Jesus Christ as we need to read all of the psalms. Psalm 130 tells us that God is merciful and provides plentiful redemption and God will not mark our iniquities. How can this be? If God is holy and all-knowing and just, does he simply cancel our condemnation, which we deserve? Well, the scriptures testify to us that God's mercy and his forgiveness come to us freely and fully and plentifully because of what our precious and blessed Redeemer Jesus Christ has done for us in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. The mercy, the mercy of God and the plentiful redemption of God comes to us so abundantly and so freely because it comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. God does not mark our iniquities, but rather he forgives them because Jesus suffered as a substitute in our place. And God's pardon is plentiful and sure because Jesus was innocent and obedient. And what is more pleasing to God than sacrifice? It's obedience. Jesus was perfectly obedient, but he was also a perfect, innocent sacrifice without blemish. And he offered himself as an innocent and obedient son and sacrifice in our place, which brought about a perfectly powerful and plentiful, plentiful pardon for all of God's people. 
And none who come to God for mercy in Christ Jesus will find, I'm very sorry, but it's run out. We told our people, make sure you get to the Joint Reformation service early because space runs out. (laughs) It's finite. It's limited. But that's not how it is when we come to the cross, is it? They don't say, sorry, forgiveness is used up for today. Come back tomorrow or come back next week. We're waiting for a new shipment of mercy No, at the cross is plentiful and abundant redemption for all who call upon the name of the Lord. That's what the word of God says. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We know all of this because God has has ensured that we know it by committing it to writing and transmitting it through the ages as he preserves his word until it reaches us. And in that word, he has recorded that his covenant with us is to remember our sins no more because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 130, this plentiful pardon, this wonderful and majestic mercy is what it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is covenant mercy. It is covenant pardon. It is beautiful, wonderful salvation that we enjoy in and through and because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in Psalm 130, see that when when we plead for mercy and hope for forgiveness and wait for redemption, we obtain it all in Jesus Christ because God forgives sins, because God fulfills his promises, because with him is steadfast love as we have already sung our sins they are many but his mercy is more perhaps you attend today and you don't know the lord by believing in his son jesus christ the good news of the gospel from the scriptures and so gloriously proclaimed through the reformation is that if you call upon the name of the lord you will be saved because with him There is forgiveness and plentiful redemption. And all the people of God say, praise the Lord. He is so good to us. He will hear our cries. He will listen to those who call upon him and name his son. Oh God, hear me for Christ's sake. Forgive me for Christ's sake and none will be denied. Brothers and sisters, I want to now change this, uh, not change it, but adjust our perspective from addressing someone who does not know the Lord to addressing those of us, many of us, most of us, I I would easily say, who do know the Lord. What does Psalm 130 say to us who are resting in Christ, who have received him by faith? Psalm 130 for us It was salvation, and it is salvation, but even more so, perhaps, it becomes now assurance of salvation unto us. Assurance of salvation. As we, in our church services, I'm sure on a a regular basis, we are assured of God's pardon, because with him is plentiful redemption, abundant forgiveness. God gives forgiveness to us, to his children, So we're saved again? No, it's assurance of salvation. It's not in the court of heaven. It's in the court of conscience that our sins are forgiven and our consciences are cleansed and we are reassured of our salvation. 
Psalm 130 reassures the people of God, the children of God, of their salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as I have exhorted the unbeliever to come to Christ, now I exhort the believer to rejoice in Christ, to delight in him, to rest in him, to, re- to, to overflow with joy because of all that he has done for you. What a wonderful love we have received from God that we should be his children and we are in Jesus Christ. Well, to bring the sermon to a conclusion, I want to come back to the question I asked at the beginning of what difference did the Reformation make in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian? And you may know that this psalm was very personal to Martin Luther. It was very important in his own experience of coming to to better understand the teachings of the scriptures, and it helped Martin Luther to have assurance of his own salvation in a way that he could not experience it under the teachings of Rome. In fact, Rome explicitly denies the possibility of assurance to the believer because it's presumption, they say. But Psalm 130 reassures us of the assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. However, Martin Luther is not the example that I want to give you in terms of proving or showing the difference that the Reformation made in the life of individual Christians. I'm sure that you, like me, would like to have a a time machine and whirl ourselves back into the past to see all kinds of things, like who wrote Hebrews? which of course we know is Paul. (laughs) But in our time machine, we would like to go back and meet Reformation Christians. What was it like to see this change from darkness to light in terms of the truth and the recovery of the truth? And we would want to talk to them, talk to brothers and sisters from the past. And you may think, well, we simply can't do that. And it's true, we can't talk to them, but they can talk to us. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. So I want to share some quotations with you, and they're going to be projected on the wall where we've been seeing the hymns and the creeds and such things, and projecting it, there's the easiest way to share these quotations with you. We're going to find, we're going to read uh, portions of two last wills and testaments from two Christians, Sir Thomas Baldry and Lady Catherine Scott. Now, I don't know how many of you have already made your last will and testament. I'm going to guess not many of you. But last wills and testaments can be, well, let me start over. They can be very sterile, business-like, cold, I leave everything to my wife, the end. (laughs) Last wills and testaments can also be very personal, very expressive. And in these wills, or last wills and testaments, we find the heart and the mind of these Christians being expressed. They're thinking these words, and then they're causing them to be put to paper as their last will and testament. So this is their mind, this is their voice, this is their heart speaking from the past to us today. And the first of these, well, before we get into the the next quotation, if you read Last Wills and Testaments from the 16th and 17th century, there's, there are common patterns that they follow, and they often make arrangements for their body, and they make arrangements for their souls in their Last Will and Testament. 
And we're going to compare the arrangements that Sir Thomas Baldry made for his soul and the arrangements that Lady Catherine Scott made for her soul taken out of their last wills and testaments with updated spelling, but the words are from the originals. How would you make arrangements for your soul when you die? That's the matter of greatest importance, isn't it? Well, we'll see what they did. Let's begin with Thomas Baldry and see what a difference the Reformation made. So we're going through our time machine back to 1534, 1534 in England, which is only 17 years after Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door in Wittenberg. So England, the Church of England, is still very much in the grip of Rome and in the, in the Roman darkness, as it would have been called in the past. And this is the mind of a Christian in that time, 1534, in his last will and testament. This is how Sir Thomas Baldry made arrangements for his soul. He said, I will that my executors shall find an honest and well-disposed priest to sing in the church for the space of ten years after my decease for my soul and the souls of my father and mother, and also to say three times every week during the said ten years for my soul the prayers for the dead, and that my executors pay every year during the said ten years to the same priest for his salary in that behalf eight pounds." And he goes on, And I will, that when and as often as it shall happen, any such priest as shall sing for my soul and the souls above said, to be of evil disposition or of evil living, that then the said priest so offending be put out and removed from his said service, and that another priest be named and admitted to the said service to sing for my soul and the souls above said. Now, as Sir Thomas Baldry makes preparations for his soul in his last will and testament, what is his hope? What is his expectation? He expects that when he dies, his soul will be sent to purgatory. And he is using the resources of this life, the wealth that he, that he had accumulated, as a way to pay a priest to recite prayers for the dead on behalf of his soul and the souls of his parents for ten years. But he's concerned that this priest may not be reliable or trustworthy or sufficiently virtuous to actually accomplish any good in this discipline. So he makes provision to ensure, it, and if this priest can't do it or if this priest isn't good enough, let's replace him. And so he's using his wealth to make these provisions. So for the price of eight pounds a year for 10 years, that's 80 pounds in total, he's hoping to get himself and his parents out of purgatory sooner. Now, I will gladly say that Sir Thomas Baldry, he did not lack salvation, but he did lack assurance of salvation. His assurance is wrapped up with earthly priests and his ability to keep paying them after he dies. He's concerned about what's he going to do after he dies to keep things working well on my behalf. But what if you're poor? What if you're a poor Christian? So wealthy Christians get to make it through purgatory more quickly than poor Christians? Sir Thomas is concerned for his soul, but he's using money to try to shorten the duration of his stay there. And he wants a, a, a sinful priest to hopefully not be too sinful and sing songs for him. What kind of Christian hope is this? Is that Christian hope 
I want to read Psalm 130 to Sir Thomas Baldry and say, read this, listen to this. With you, there is plentiful redemption. With you, there is forgiveness. Well, Sir Thomas Baldry would have been very pleasantly surprised when he died that there was no purgatory, and he had feared in vain. He had feared in vain and made preparations in vain. So what did the Reformation actually change? We're going to move now to 1617. That's 100 years after nailing the theses to the door of Wittenberg. And this is how Lady Catherine Scott made preparations for her soul when she signed her last will and testament in 1617. Lady Catherine Scott, a sister in Christ, said this. First, as most of all concerning to me, I bequeath my soul into the hands of God the Father, my Maker, hoping only to be saved by the merits and mercies of Jesus, my blessed Redeemer, confirmed in that expectation by the testimony of the Holy Ghost, the elect's comforter, renouncing all vain confidence in earthly things and placing my trust in God alone, which persuasion that it may prevail in me unto the end and in the end, the God of all grace grant through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now she's been well taught. <laughs> Lady Catherine Scott has learned some things and she is professing her faith in her last will and testament in beautiful terms. Every one of us says, Amen, Catherine. Well done, Katie. Praise the Lord for these truths. So if you want to know what difference did the Reformation make in the life of a believer like you and me, it's abundantly evident by comparing Thomas and Catherine. Thomas is, is worried and concerned. Lady Catherine is, is very calm. Does she have perfect, perfect hope? No, she has said, which persuasion that it may prevail in me unto the end and in the end, the God of all grace grant through Jesus Christ our Lord. She's saying, I am assured of my salvation. I am sure and certain in it, but, but may God preserve me in this assurance. May he help me to have this same confidence all the way to the day of my death. And if you said, but Lady Catherine, aren't, aren't you worried? She would say, no, God's, the, the merits and mercies of Jesus, my blessed Redeemer, are, are abundantly sufficient. But don't you want someone to, to sing for your soul? She said, no, I renounce all vain confidence in earthly things. You'd say, but, but do you have any confirmation of this? She'd say, yes, I'm confirmed in that expectation by the testimony of the Holy Ghost, the elect's comforter. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wrapping Lady Catherine up in joy and delight in this life and confidence and hope for the next life. If you told her, Catherine, you need to pay some money to make this better, she would probably laugh at you and say, that's silly. What did the Reformation change? We can contrast confessions and we can contrast documents. We can look at debates and all those things. And they're an important part, a huge part of the changes that were made and the differences that we see but I hope that this gives you a special window into the past. It gives you a special window into the personal experience of the life of Christians before us. And again, the difference between Thomas and Catherine is not salvation, it's assurance. Thomas still sees himself in the pit of Psalm 130. But Catherine, is, she is so free, <laughs> she's way out of that pit. She's not even close. She's not hoping for redemption someday. She's possessing and enjoying redemption now. 
She's been drawn out of the pit because of God's abundant mercy and pardon. Sir Thomas Baldry was robbed of his peace and assurance by twisted teachings. And the Reformation restored the peace and light of the gospel to Christians like Lady Catherine Scott. Have you made preparations for your soul? Many last wills and testaments say this, nothing is so uncertain as life, nor as certain as death. All men die. Would you buy your funeral plot and set your house in order and manage your financial assets, all of which deteriorate and decay, but fail to see to the safety and salvation of your immortal soul? Psalm 130 has taught us that for those in the pit, there is but one escape, one way out, one way to keep from sinking in that mud and muck and mire down to the fire's of hell itself, and that is to call upon God for mercy, naming the name of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came for us and for our salvation, and he won it. Brothers and sisters, rejoice and rest in salvation and in assurance of salvation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we renounce all vain confidence in earthly things, and we hope only in you and your word. We hope only in your Son, Jesus Christ, the merits and mercies of Jesus. And in his name, we come to you again as your children, asking you to refresh in our minds, refresh in our hearts, refresh in our consciences the peace that we have with you in the blood of Jesus Christ. How we thank you for your steadfast love, How we thank you for your covenant that is sure and certain. How we thank you that you never change, and therefore we can trust in your word. We ask you to help us to live a life of gratitude and obedience, that we might fear you because of your mercy and your pardon. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.